in five, four, three, two, one. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Moon Tea Podcast. Today we have Russell Wong, and he's a he's a software <laughs> developer who lives in Vancouver, Canada. He has a blog, morehousing.ca, and he recently ran for city council. And just as a just as a caveat, Hugh and I are not experts on housing, and we're not experts on local politics, especially in Vancouver. The reason I'm interested personally is because my girlfriend is from there, and our plan is to eventually live out there. So I've been more and more interested in the city planning side of Vancouver and uh, came upon Russell's blog and just I just felt you were saying a lot of things that a lot of people were thinking just the fact that we need a lot more housing and yeah I'm sure I'm sure we'll dive right into all of that but welcome. Thanks John and thanks you. Yeah thanks for having me on. Yeah is there anything you wanted to add to the intro? No honestly I think that's good. I would say I'm not an expert either. The thing about being a political candidate is you're more of a generalist. You talk to a lot of different people about different things, but yeah, definitely housing is for me the big reason that I ran. My wife and I, we've got two kids who are now 18 and 20, and it feels 20 years ago when we were looking for a place, Vancouver was expensive, but doable. But since then it's gotten much more unaffordable. So yeah, to fix that, the basic problem is housing is scarce. We don't have enough. And in that situation, it's only if you've got a lot of money that you can afford to buy in Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get started. I'm curious how you went from like concerned citizen to running under Mayor Kennedy's like new party. Like how does one go from that to, to there right away? It was a gradual process. I'm interested in economics and I spend a fair amount of time online. I like to argue with people about different things, respectfully, of course. And so you run into people talking about housing, I guess I would actually say in the US context. So people like Matthew Iglesias, for example, I think of as someone who talks a lot about housing policy or Nolan Gray. And they talk about how in a lot of US and also Canadian cities, Land use is extremely restrictive. So this is certainly true in Vancouver that almost everywhere it's illegal to build an apartment building. If you want to build an apartment building, you actually have to go to city hall, you have to negotiate with them, and you actually have to get the law changed. So this is called rezoning to allow for an apartment building to be built in a place that otherwise only allows single family houses or duplexes or whatever. And that means it's a very slow and difficult and kind of political process because anytime you change the law, you have a public hearing where anyone who feels they may be affected can speak to council. And so in the past, that has often been people who are most fearful of new housing and its impacts. In more recent years, as the housing shortage has become worse and worse, there's been people who are trying to counterbalance that. So often younger people, often renters, who do take the time to speak to council. And I guess I've gotten involved with this community. There's a group in Vancouver called Abundant Housing Vancouver. There's similar groups that you'll find in most cities where this is an issue. So for example, in Toronto, the corresponding group is called More Neighbors Toronto. And yeah, I guess I would say that being part of a community and doing this 
makes for a different experience than just doing it on your own. If you go up and speak to counsel and then you go home, it's, did they listen? Did it make any impact versus doing it as part of a group? So I guess, yeah, after I, I started speaking to counsel after joining this community and at some point Kennedy Stewart was recruiting people to run with him in this election that just happened. So yeah, I said, yes. Hugh, for context, Kennedy's Stewart party forward together ended up not winning, like he did not win re-election. And then there was another party called ABC, A Better Vancouver, and the guy running for mayor, Ken Sim, won. So he also ran four years ago and he, it was a really close race. And then this time around, he won by a bigger margin. And then all of his city councillors, his park board members just won, I think, all their seats. Correct. Um, so Yeah, it was a sweep. I guess I would describe the race in the end as between Kennedy Stewart and Ken Sim with a third mayoral candidate, Colleen Hardwick, as the wild card. So the interesting thing about Colleen Hardwick's mayoral bid is that she was arguing the other side. So she was appealing to people who, who fear new housing. I guess to step back a bit, the basic dynamic here, the reason we are in this kind of situation, I think of it as we desperately need more housing. If, it, if you think of housing like a ladder with the more expensive housing near the top and housing getting, gradually getting less expensive, but also worse as you approach the bottom, we always have people coming to Vancouver because the jobs are here. So we're adding jobs faster than we're adding housing because it is slow and difficult. And as a result, whenever somebody moves here, say they work in tech and they have a pretty good income so they can find a place, it's going to be more expensive and worse than in other cities, but they can find a place. But then other people get pushed down the ladder and you get tremendous pressure on people near the bottom of the ladder. So those are people who are forced to leave the city or to crowd into substandard housing, or they just become homeless. So that's a huge problem. So... Colleen Hardwick, her explicit argument was that we don't actually have a housing shortage. So her argument was something along the lines of, we can see from census figures that Vancouver is only growing about 1% a year and we're building housing faster than that. So why is it that we have, it's impossible that we have a housing shortage? And to me, this argument makes no sense. You can look at vacancy rates and see that they're about 1%. A healthy vacancy rate would be about 3%. You can look at what's been happening to rents. So I think they've gone up due to COVID, I don't know, some crazy amount for if you're looking to rent a place. And, but she made this argument and what I was, to me, the silver lining about the mayoral race is that she was defeated very badly. So I actually got more votes than she did. And uh, uh -huh. yeah, all of the forward together candidates, none of us were elected, but we all got more votes than Colleen Hardwick did. So I'm hoping that the new government, the a better city, Ken Sim, will be able to look at that and say, okay, it looks like the people who are most fearful of new housing, that they're not a significant political constituency. Yeah, actually, for context, the start of me reaching out to you was because I myself was thinking, what can I do to make sure that Colleen Hardwick doesn't win? <laughs> so I was, I have one friend who lives in Vancouver and I would text him and be like, 
hey, can you can you vote? So yeah. yeah and in I, case in case Colleen Hardwick or her supporters are watching this, just to be clear, I actually think it's a good thing that Colleen Hardwick ran because I feel like the election is a good opportunity to settle the issue, right? Do we want more housing or or do we think we don't really need more housing? We need to slow down. Because otherwise it tends to be a running battle between people who want more housing and who don't want more housing. And it plays out at each and every public hearing, slowing down the process. So yeah, I am glad that she did. She did run. She put together a party called Team for a Livable Vancouver. Those of us who are opposed to her would call it Team for a Leavable Vancouver. And uh, yeah, I'm glad that she made the effort that she ran and uh, she had a slate with her. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to denigrate her, her. I just say, I'm, yeah, I really strongly disagree with, with her theory about what's actually happening. Yeah. And she does, she did win, I think it was like 10%, like she did win meaningful yeah. amount of votes. So it represents some portion of Vancouver. And right. yeah, I was wondering if we're familiar with the common, the common arguments of the kind of people that vote for someone like Conleen Hardwick, which is that when we build houses, we ruin neighborhood character, which is that number two, there's not enough information about housing scarcity. I don't fully understand that one. And then a third is something about a fear of developers making too much money and about pe like people from who don't live in Vancouver, just like buying up real estate. Yeah. Would you mind just sure. taking any of that and like addressing the crux behind those arguments? I know there's a lot, but yeah. Sure. To me, the really underlying factor here is really fear of the unknown. I've watched a number of public hearings. So for example, one that comes to mind is there's this new Broadway subway that's extending along the Broadway corridor. So quite built up. There's a lot of shops and a lot of people. It's close to downtown. There's a number of new rapid transit SkyTrain stations going in. And part of the funding agreement with the pro provincial government and with the national government is that the city of Vancouver would allow more housing to be built near these new SkyTrain stations. So there was a particular all rental building, 39 stories, that would be built right on top of one of the new SkyTrain stations. So there was a public hearing for the rezoning to change the law to allow this particular apartment building to be built. And the thing about rental housing compared to, I guess I'm not sure if the terminology is well known. I guess here we call it condos or strata ownership where the apartment is in individually owned. The thing about an all rental building versus a condo building is that with condos, you can either be rich enough to buy it, or if you don't have a giant down payment or you can't take on the risk of owning, you can rent it, but then you don't have any security because the owner of the condo can always say, I need the condo back for my own use or for use of someone else in my family. And then you like have two months to find a different place. Whereas if you're renting in an all rental building, a purpose-built rental, you have secure housing. It might be owned by a pension fund or something like that. They're not going to say, oh, we need this for my, I need your particular apartment back for my personal use. So what struck me about watching the public hearings is the people who are opposed would often get emotional. Like they live in the neighborhood and they really fear what this building could do to them because it hasn't been built yet. There's a wide range of possible outcomes. It could be fine. It could be terrible. They don't know. And particularly if you're older, the prospect of having to move to leave the community where you are, the neighborhood where you are, 
and try to find another place is terrifying. Totally get that. Let's see what the arguments you mentioned were. I guess I think of these arguments that Colleen Hardwick's side has put forward as being they're downstream from this underlying fear. So the most recent one I think you said was that if we build new housing, it'll all just get bought up by foreign investors. I'm not saying that I hold this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to I've figure out. That. Yes. So in fact, the province, British Columbia, and the city, before the province started pushing more for more housing, the first thing they did back when around 2014, 2015, there was a surge in home prices. And this caused a lot of consternation. It was became a politically hot topic. And in direct response to that, there were a number of demand side measures put in to try to say, okay, if it's a foreign investment, and we know there is foreign investment going on, let's cool that down. So there was a foreign buyer surtax that was brought in, an empty homes tax at the provincial level, an empty homes tax at the city level. There were two public inquiries launched into money laundering. There was a progressive schools tax, and there's something called a land ownership and transparency registry that was introduced basically to avoid the problem of, I don't know, somebody buying homes through a shell company where you don't actually know who owns them. So there are a bunch of measures put in place to try to make sure that, I guess this, the canonical example would be somebody just, you build a bunch of condo apartments, somebody overseas buy them, buys them, you don't know who they are, and then they just hold it empty because they're speculating that in the future housing will be even more scarce. The price will go up further. And so they don't really need to rent it out to anybody. It's just empty. So because of the vacancy taxes, the federal CMHC, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, which is a, an agency which looks at house, the housing market, they estimated that in a single year in 2019, about 9,000 9, apartments, which had previously been empty, were added to the long-term rental market. That's great. The taxes did what they were supposed to do, but that's a one-time jump, right? You're not going to get another 9,000 empty apartments to be filled again the following year. So. Yeah, I guess I would say maybe that would have, maybe that would be a factor, but there's already been a bunch of measures put in place to counteract that. And I would also add that none of that applies to a rental building, like this 39 story rental building. It's not condos. It can't be bought up. The apartments are not going to be bought up by foreign investors, but it aroused just as much opposition as a condo building would. What was the second? So working backwards, what was the second point you raised? about the need for housing, was it? Was it? Let me assume it was about the need for housing. Okay, how come we're building housing faster than the population is growing? Like, why does that make any sense? And the answer is there's actually a lot of crowding right now. So a historical example is the West End, when it was turned from single family houses into what it is today, high rises, there was some really massive increase in the amount of homes in the West End. I think I don't actually recall the exact figures, but it was something like 80% more homes in the West End after it was redeveloped to high rises than before. But the population only increased by 30%. So what happened was there was a lot of crowding before. You had a lot of mm. people sharing one apartment because they didn't really have any choice. The amount of homes and the population are not necessarily directly related. 
Another example is that Alvin Singh, another guy who ran for council with Forward Together, likes to cite is he grew up here, his parents bought a place, he and his sister, they lived at home, and then eventually they moved out on their own. So there's no change to population, but now you have three homes instead of one. Basically, the housing that people need is going to probably increase as they get older, even if the population doesn't change at all. So you go from being a kid living at home to at some point a young adult who moves out on their own, probably at some point in the future, like you have kids, and then you might need to go from an apartment to a larger space, like maybe a townhome or a suburban house. So just even if the population's not changing, just as people age, they will probably need more space. In theory, once your kids leave home, you may downsize, but in practice, a lot of people if they're comfortable where they are, they may want to stay where they are. And one more example of that phenomenon is that as people become wealthier, they may also want more space. Might be renting out part of your home and then decide, now I don't really need a mortgage helper. We can just have that space back to ourselves. And one final factor I would point out is COVID. So probably people watching this have noticed that the housing crunch has gotten much worse over the last couple of years, wherever you are. And the reason for that, which Matthew Iglesias has pointed out, is that suddenly you had a lot of people working from home. And previously they would go to the office, work, work at the office, and then come back home. But now they're spending all day at home. And so a lot of people would think, okay, I actually need more space. So again, if someone was renting out part of their space, they might say, I need that space back. Or they might say, okay, I need to actually move to a bigger place. And so you can think if... On average, say people need 10% more space and because you can't build housing overnight, suddenly you have 10% less homes available. So again, if you think of the housing ladder, again, people are being pushed down the housing ladder and, and yeah, you can see prices of at any particular point on the ladder really going up. As people moved around from bigger cities to smaller centers, prices increase in, in different places. But nationally, if you look at the national figures, we have this shortage of res residential space simultaneously with kind of a surplus of office space. And I think the hope was that maybe it was just temporary and eventually would people would go back to the office, but it kind of like, even though people are returning to the office, this effect will not go away on its own. There are more people working from home who like working from home, who have advantages from working from home. And yeah, the way to fix it is actually to build more. And then what was the first point you raised? Oh, I don't remember, but I have a follow-up question. Oh, sure. Yeah, go ahead. So I wanted to know if you had any like out there ideas about ways to increase housing about just a, I don't know how to pronounce it. Senac? Senac. Yes. Senac. Yes. So Hugh, for context, there's some area that's owned by the indigenous people of Vancouver, and they're recently teamed up with a big developer and they're creating like this giant like series of houses that I think it'll be like 6,000 units. And there there's, it's one out of 10 units, one out of every 10 units has a parking space. And yeah, it's like very, the, and the only reason they're able to do this is because they own their own land. And so they didn't have to abide by the traditional process of going to the city and then going back and forth like apparently I think that can take years and when I saw that I thought wow this is super cool great location people are going to really like this it's also all rentals I think correct I thought too much parking personally but but yeah like 
it seemed like a really good move in the right direction. And I was wondering if you had like moonshot ideas or yeah, anything up your sleeve. I guess one idea that's been brought up by an economist on in Ontario, Mike Moffat, and I should mention that in Ontario, they've got a very similar problem with not enough housing being built in the greater Toronto area, which has pushed families further out. And then with COVID, things exploded. So it's turning into a huge issue. So Mike's idea is just allow a lot more student residences to be built. So students who are from out of town or international make up a big chunk of rental demand. And a lot of post-secondary institutions, universities, and in Ontario, especially colleges, have not been building student residences. So if you could do something like say, okay, if you want to build a student residence, it's, it's by, so you don't have to change the law to do it. Let's just say, okay, let's make student residences legal up to six stories. Yeah. He's saying, okay, you could probably build student housing pretty fast. And that would help to relieve some of the pressure on the rest of the housing system. And no one is yeah. against like young, ambitious, like students from being part of the city. Like that just seems like a, well, it's no, like they, something that's, yeah. I would expect this would still be a big fight, honestly. It doesn't, people aren't necessarily against students, but I think anytime you propose change to a neighborhood, because if you allow student residences to be built near campus, it will, there will be change. And so I imagine you would get pushback and fight, but hmm. once you had that in place, yeah, that would, that would help. Just trying to think if there's anything else I can add with, with your comments on snack. I, yeah, I agree that it's, it's great. It's close to downtown. It's just like across the Burrard bridge from the downtown core. Yeah. It's by the Squamish nation in particular. There's three First Nations in Vancouver. So Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh are the three of them. And they're actually working closely together on a number of projects like the Jericho Lands and Heatherlands projects. But Sanak is on Squamish land specifically. And as you said, even though geographically it's within the city of Vancouver because it's Squamish land, city of Vancouver rules do not apply. My idea, oh. yeah, my idea is... Seattle has these, by the way, houseboats. Ah, there's just be houseboats everywhere. Why not? We have houseboats here too, actually. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think, are there any other kind of off the wall ideas? Yeah, nothing comes to mind. I think for me, yeah, let's student housing would be, would be one. Cool. So my next question had to do with the Vancouver plan. So Hugh, I'm catching up on all this, but the Vancouver plan was a big document that basically said there will be parts of the city that are dedicated for kind of like more urban uses. And then there are other parts that are more like residential, but even in the residential, they still want to be able to build like at least three-story units, uh, three-story houses with, I think, six units. And then they get bigger, the closer you get to transit and like businesses and restaurants. And so my question, and feel free to add on what I have missed out on, but then I was wondering like, why, like it was passed, but then it wasn't, there weren't actually any zoning changes. And so it was cool that it got passed, but then it wasn't clear to me if there were like immediate, if there was immediate impact from it. So yeah, I thought you described it pretty well. I guess I, I think of it as the next level up. So if you've got like a residential street with primarily single family homes and maybe duplexes, then the idea with the Vancouver plan is, yeah, you could build like small townhouse complexes in the area 
around some SkyTrain stations, rapid transit corridors. You could build high rises in between, like on a, near local shopping areas, you could have maybe mid rises, like six story buildings. In terms of what the actual impact is, I think the basic idea is that when zoning comes forward, if it's consistent with the Vancouver plan, then city staff, the ones who actually do the negotiation and report back to council for a final decision or ratification, they can point to the Vancouver plan and say, look, city council did pass this. This is consistent with the Vancouver plan. Therefore, we are recommending that city council then go ahead and approve it. But you still have this kind of two-step process where you have this overall plan, but then you still need to go through the rezoning process in order to actually get approval to, to build anything that's covered by the Vancouver plan. So the idea is it'll help. You don't have to start from, very, from scratch and justify the existence of this particular building in this particular place. You can just point to the overarching decision, but you do still need to get counsel to say yes to your particular building, again, in the face of likely neighborhood opposition. So the, so it was not an option to include the rezoning as part of the Vancouver plan? Certainly it was, I would say it was not possible given the makeup of the previous council. So there were 11 votes, mayor plus 10 councillors. I would describe three or maybe four of the, of those votes as being consistently yes, including the mayor. I would describe two or maybe three of the votes as being consistently no. And then there were people who were in the middle who would sometimes vote yes, sometimes vote no. So definitely at most, I would say there were probably maybe four votes who would have supported just going ahead and making stuff legal without requiring a further rezoning application. And even there, I think that would have been, that would have been a lot. And then with the current council, probably the same kind of thing. I guess there was a, something called the streamlining rental plan which said specifically in areas where four-story condo buildings were already legal, six-story rental buildings would be allowed. So again, no rezoning required, but that was for very specific areas. I think getting through a rezoning for all of the area covered by the Vancouver plan, yeah, that wasn't really contemplated. The Vancouver plan was supposed to be a high-level thing, and, and maybe there'll be some future rezoning to go along with it, like on a mass basis, as opposed to on an individual basis. But yeah, that's unclear. At the moment, it looks like what this means is if you've got a particular project where you want to build something, then you can, you can, or staff can point to the Vancouver plan as, and you can say, okay, look, this is consistent with the Vancouver plan. Cool. Hugh, do you have any questions about a uh, Vancouver Housing. I think this is like so informative. Having lived in like San Francisco for a while and knowing about the gentrification process and a lot of people being dispersed there and a lot of yes. that being driven by even like the yuppie culture or the young millennials. Mm. And no one's really living there long term though in a certain way or what's the detraction of culture and community culture versus just the identity of a tech-driven culture or something like that. Is interesting. But then with regards to Vancouver, I'm curious. So I was hearing a few different possible tools in which locals and or municipalities are able to utilize if they want to try to address the affordable housing issue and or the access to housing. And so with that, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's 
currently there's condos, there's private types of master plan communities, I'm sure. And then there's residential communities. And then with that, you've also got the possible tool sets of actually creating it to be more like renter driven sky rises that mm-hmm. is one tool houseboats is another tool student efficiency for putting people in the same area so you're like creating efficiency in the housing type of template of a community are there any other types of possible tried and true ways that we know of that people sure. should learn about especially myself <laughs> sure Let's see. So you mentioned gentrification and displacement. There was a, this was a huge political issue in a neighboring municipality of Burnaby in the election four years ago, because there's a a SkyTrain station, Metrotown, where there were a lot of, I guess, 50 or 60 year old, so older three and four story rental buildings. So these were pretty affordable, but they were nearing the end of their life. And leading up to the 2018 election, a lot of these were redeveloped. They were replaced with new high rises, typically condos. So much more, much higher on the housing ladder. So much more difficult for people to afford. And the people who had been living in those three and four story buildings were just displaced. So there was no protection for them. So following the 2018 election, when this was a big political issue resulting in the long serving mayor of Burnaby at that time being defeated, the new council brought in renter protections saying that whenever this happens, whenever older rental building, older low-rise rental building is replaced with a new high-rise rental building, the new building must include at least 20% of the apartments must be below market. And whoever was living in the old building before must have the right to return to one of these apartments. You take an old rental building reaching the end of its life, you replace it with a much taller building, but you include enough apartments to accommodate all of the people who were living there before. So this was used as a template in the Broadway plan. And so there's a similar protection for renters saying that, yeah, if you are displaced from a low rise building, because it's been, it's going to be replaced by a high rise, you have the right to return. And it's actually a bit stronger than the Burnaby plan in that you can actually return at your previous rent. So yes, displacement is definitely an issue that has come up in greater Vancouver and that current plans for redevelopment address. A further implication of this is that if you're a developer looking at where do you want to build a high rise, you have a strong incentive to look for places where nobody is going to be displaced. So if you have a site, which is like a parking lot or an old restaurant or an office building where there are no renters. It's going to be easier and cheaper to build a new high rise than a site where there are, where there is an existing low rise building with renters. So that's part of the Broadway plan is to build new buildings where there's no displacement first. And then only as the low rise buildings are like, yeah, so old that they can't really be operated anymore. They lose their value. That's when you would replace them. But because you've added more housing, more new housing to the area already, you probably have some place to put the renters temporarily while the new building's going up and then they can return at their previous rent. The general principle here is, I guess I would say cross subsidization between the 20% of the apartments in a building and the 80% that are at market rates. So basically the 80% of the apartments are used to cross subsidize the 20% at, at below market rates. 
And there's, yeah, there's a program that was put in place for, that was in place for a while, basically saying that if a developer wanted to build a rental building and they committed to including 20% below market apartments, that they would actually be able to build a taller building. So then they would, the overall value of the building would be greater, allowing for this kind of cross subsidization. I think the general term for this is inclusionary zoning, saying that when you build a new building, it should really include a number of below market apartments. That does have a cost. So I always think of the economics of building a rental building as the stream of future rents being paid by future renters are what's paying for the construction of the building. And so if you said, okay, we want 50% of the units to be below market, and we want it to be really deeply affordable, then that is all of that is reducing the value of the future rents. And at some point, it no longer makes economic sense to do that. So that's why in Vancouver, it's typically been set at 20%. Is there a like widespread social housing scenario that you think could work really well? So I'm thinking about Singapore, which is like the golden example of social housing that that a lot of people benefit from. I don't know the exact amount, but I've heard that something like 40% or maybe 50% of residents in Singapore live in subsidized housing. And they just have I think, these- Yeah, I think it's actually more like 80 or 90%. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's, I describe it as subsidized. I describe it as publicly built. So back in the 60s, Singapore, which was newly independent, had this massive housing shortage. And so the government, the People's Action Party, which is still the government at that time had a socialist orientation and they set up this HDB housing development board to build this massive amount. Oops. There we go. 80%. They build this massive amount of high rise towers. Eventually they became more market oriented and basically people could own the apartments instead of just renting them. But yeah, it's a giant amount of the housing in Singapore is actually, was actually publicly built. Yeah. Yeah. So the tricky thing about, about subsidized or like below market Mm. housing is that just by definition, there's always going to be a shortage of them. If you have anything that is cheaper than the market rate, then more people are going to want to live there. And so it's unless you build like some crazy amount, there's just not going to be enough. So yeah, I feel like people who are always like, oh, but what about Below market, what about affordable? Like, I, I feel like what I want to say to them is if there are affordable housing, if there is affordable housing, like it's probably going to be really hard for you to get it. And if you do get it, you're going to be like one of the really lucky ones that do. But right. so, yeah, I think yeah. of it as with market housing, I think of market rentals as being somewhere in the middle of the ladder. So more affordable than owning, but you still have to have a, a decent income to afford market rentals. I think of with a market housing as you can think of it as you've got market rents which match vacancies which with people looking for a place so if you've got like 100 vacancies roughly equivalent at a particular location and you're trying to find a place there then you're competing with the 100 highest income people who also happen to be looking for a place so if there's only 50 of them it becomes harder because the 50th person on the list is probably going to have be able to afford more than the 100th person. If there were like 500 vacancies, then it would be easier because the 500th person, the marginal renter, 
the last person who gets a place is going to have less income. It's going to be easier to compete with them. With non-market housing, with subsidized housing, it's usually done either through a waiting list or I guess in some places, maybe through a lottery. And yeah, there's a number of below market places, but to get in, you have to put your name on a waiting list and then wait until your name comes up. Another option is if you have enough vacancies in the market is to provide a per renter subsidy as opposed to attaching the subsidy to the apartment. So in the US, I think this is section eight. Yeah, that if, you, if your income is below a certain level, you can apply for a subsidy. I think that works best in a city where you actually do have a lot of vacancies. If you don't have many vacancies, what happens, what would presumably happen is that just having this subsidy would result in rents just rising. Yeah, that makes sense. And hopefully in a decade we can live, there can be a Vancouver with like millions of homes and not necessarily like giant condos, but then just a lot of like mixed use yeah. residential density. I I was in Montreal a few weeks ago, mm. which is like the most European city in North America. And it's, it, it was just like, it was so beautiful, like access to transit is good and they have really great bike lanes. And yeah, it's, I'm like, kind of, it's sad. It's sad that kind of city is like so rare in North America. Vancouver yeah. has elements of it, but yeah. Yeah. Montreal is interesting because it's, it's considerably larger than Vancouver, but has definitely allowed denser housing on the kind of street where in Vancouver you would have single family homes, lots of trees. That's pretty nice. But if you go to Montreal and you look at the corresponding streets, they feel the same, but instead you have two or three story apartment buildings. So yeah, in a lot of ways, Montreal is interesting as an example of, yeah, a city that's done a better job with housing affordability. I guess, I'm, and sorry, you mentioned oh, maybe 10 years from now. Yeah. I, you may have seen this post I did that CMHC released a report trying to figure out okay, how much housing do we need between now and 2030 to bring affordability back to the level of, say, 2003, roughly 20 years ago? And the answer is BC and Ontario need to more than double the rate at which we're building housing. So yeah, if we, if we lift up the brake pedal and try to build housing as fast as possible, and if we are able to reach that rate of home building, it's a 10-year project. But yeah, let me ask, turn it around and ask what housing is like in in New York City, what's your experience of the, how would you describe it? Oh, I got my apartment before the end of COVID. And so okay. I, I moved in at a discount to what it was like a few years before. And then when it came time to renewing, it was considerably, it was like considerably more. I was not lucky enough to live in a rent subsidized place. And then that was it. That was a part of my decision in us moving to the West Coast. Okay. I don't live in New York City anymore. Luckily, Hugh visited for the last month that I was there because he was not visiting for the longest time. But yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely an issue out there. Hugh and I also lived in San Francisco, like right after college, when we were okay. uh, in a much lower tax bracket, and we we lived the struggle. I like lived in a closet in Berkeley and. Like literally a closet. I can confirm this. I saw it with my own eyes. Okay. You'd have to go through our friend's room <laughs> to get to his room, which is a closet. Okay. okay. Standard size closet or like a large closet? It was big enough to fit a twin bed. Okay. Yeah. 
All right. But yeah, New York, yeah, New York, New York City is interesting because it's like it's so dense and like people don't drive cars and it's still very out of reach for so much of the population. And like people will buy a house in Connecticut and then take the metro north to get right. to work and then they'll go far in Jersey. So it's like you go like a hundred mile or two hundred mile radius and then everyone is like in one way or another like working in the city so like during the week everyone comes yeah it's really interesting to see that and interesting to see how as people like want to buy homes like they're priced out and they have to move out okay yeah to me it's interesting that i guess it feels like a lot of prominent democrats in the u.s like aoc for example are now definitely on the side of supporting more housing. Yeah, I guess particularly in Democrat-controlled states like California, Oregon, Washington, New York City. Yeah, it would be really nice to see more housing to combat the both the affordability and also homelessness issues. If the issue is that we just don't have enough housing to go around. In Vancouver, and I assume elsewhere, the situation is you've got a lot of people who want housing, who want to live and work in a particular place. And then you've got other people who want to build housing for them. But there's just a lot of, it's really difficult to actually get permission to build housing. So if in places where the government is an issue, if we can fix that and make it easier to build housing, that would be really helpful. There's an interesting comparison of San Francisco to Atlanta housing markets. It's a paper by Glazer and Giorco. Yeah, it presents a graph showing housing starts and home prices. So in Atlanta, what is as the economy booms and you have a lot more people moving to Atlanta, you see an increase in home building starts. It just goes up and down like this and prices stay relatively stable. In San Francisco, it's the reverse. Housing starts are low and steady and prices going crazy. So if we can be, if we can get cities to be, have a more elastic housing supply, more like Atlanta and less like San Francisco's, yeah, that would help us like start building our way out of the problem. San Francisco is the... Worst case scenario of mm. Vancouver in 10, 20 years, if the NIMBYs are correct, are, uh, have a lot of power. Yeah, I think if we don't fix this, then it'll be like California and Texas, where a lot of people end up moving from California to Texas, even though wages are lower there because the cost of housing is so much lower. So then here we might have people moving to Calgary or Edmonton, for example. Yeah, I think at least in the US, the Another problem is number one, the 30 year fixed mortgage, which when interest rates are low, it incentivizes people to take on buy bigger houses than they might have otherwise, or buy a lot more houses than they might have otherwise. And then it also increases the price of housing. Oh, and the second thing would be the the tax deduction that mm. that you get, you can write off your interest from your mortgage. And like that was originally made to make houses more affordable but when that lever is pulled it just like the market like the market adjusts and the house prices go up and then it makes it so that people who can cover the down payment and like people who have the kinds of assets where they can borrow against something and just buy another house like those are the kinds of people that are like taking advantage of those and i don't know i don't know if canada has the interest rate deduction i think canada has a five-year Mortgage. Correct. Yeah, it's pretty typical to have the maximum term be five years. I would say that the U.S. housing bubble in around, I guess, leading up to about 2006, 2007, and then the financial crash that resulted after that, 
that had a pretty big effect on Canadians thinking, especially at the government level. So there are a number of things put in place, having the 25 years be the maximum term of a mortgage. Previously, I think there'd been moves to extend it up to 40 years. There was a mortgage stress test that was brought in to basically say, even though interest rates are low now, when you get a mortgage, you have to show that you'd be okay, even if interest rates went up 2%. But that said, we never went through the same kind of crash that the US did. And definitely pre-COVID, there were a lot of fears that people were assuming real estate would always be a good investment, no matter how the prices, how high the prices went. And that's where you get into Robert Schiller's irrational exuberance dynamic, right? Where when everybody thinks something's a good investment, so many people can pile in and double down, as you said, on existing investments. They could drive the price up to the point where it's no longer a good investment. So now with inflation being high, which we haven't seen since the 70s, the central bank is now raising interest rates pretty rapidly in order to bring inflation back down to 2% to cool down the economy. And we're seeing home prices, home sales stall first because home prices are sticky downwards, but then home prices have also been coming down. So yeah, people who overextend themselves may be exiting the market now. But uh, well, yeah, we are coming up to an yeah. hour and we could probably keep talking about this for a long time, but that might be a good place to, to stop. Cool. Yeah, we're. Uh, I'm curious. I know you wrote a blog post about, about trying to help Ken Sim and the rest of the people who are elected see the value of building housing and unblocking that. But do you have any idea of like next steps other, I guess, other than the day job? I guess I mean, a lot. Yeah. 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 I feel like the value of democracy or one of the key advantages of democracy is the ability to transfer power without having to go through a civil war or revolution. So a key part of that is for the loser to accept that they lost. Yeah and to congratulate the winner. And yeah, I really do hope that now that the Ken Sim and ABC, a better city, have a clear majority on council, it should be easier to get things done. So the last time, the last four years, we've had a divided council with no stable majority. And the last time Vancouver went through that was actually the mid eighties. So that was a long time ago and it has been pretty difficult to get stuff done. So yeah, I really do hope that Ken Sim and ABC are able to make progress on the key issues I guess I would say housing is the most important issue for a lot of people in this election. Public safety is like close behind that. So yeah, in terms of myself personally, I'm happy to go back to my day job of software development, nothing to do with real estate at all, developing test equipment for computer networks and yeah, return to more on a volunteer basis. I guess I think of keeping the flow of information going in two directions. One is to try to summarize policies that are being proposed or particular projects that are being proposed for people on Reddit. There's a lot of non-political people who, but who are very interested in housing, like what's happening. And then conversely, when there's a sort of key housing decision coming before council, yeah, to try to make the case for why more housing would be better or why this particular policy makes sense. Again, primarily driven to try to counterbalance opposition to new housing. But yeah, I'm happy to just return to the sidelines and do this on a volunteer basis. Cool. And uh, final two questions is uh, number one, anything you want to uh, promote to our 10 or 11 listeners? Then, I guess I would yeah. say if you want to take a look at morehousing.ca, I do try to explain stuff. Try to think what a really good book on housing would be. I guess a couple come to mind. One is uh, by a guy named Alain Berteau called Order Without Design. 
So that talks about land economics, basically. For example, most it's mostly driven by jobs. Like people want to be in a place where they have easy access to a lot of jobs. And that's why the center of a city is where most people want to live. And that's typically why you get the densest housing. He explains that all that really well based on his 50-year career as an urban planner. Another is, maybe I should recommend Matthew Iglesias's The Rent is Too Damn High. So that's mm -hmm. a good description of the problem for a general audience. Cool. And then last question is, do you have any generic words of wisdom for our audience? <laughs> wow, that is really generic. I guess this is... This may be more specific, but when it comes to somebody who lives in Vancouver, I often feel like when people are thinking about saving for retirement, they often think about, okay, the next step is to buy a place, use the mortgage, paying down the mortgage is a forced savings plan. And I would say my advice would be to actually look at low-cost index funds as an alternative. So in Canada, the, there's a blog called The Canadian Couch Potato. Okay, so you already know this and maybe you've already told your... No, keep going. Please don't stop. I guess real estate has a lot of disadvantages. What are some of the key ones? It's not scalable in the sense that you have to buy an entire house or home, like an apartment. You can't buy like a tenth of it. And usually that means you have to borrow a giant chunk of money. It means that you are not diversified at all. For example, if Vancouver were to go through an earthquake, which is predicted any time in the next 50 years, we would have a massive earthquake. That would have a huge impact on real estate prices in Vancouver. Um, if you have a, an index fund, it, basically you are invested in a small slice of the entire economy. You are not subject to that kind of like one-shot risk that takes you out. A third thing is that when you buy a home, because of its lack of scalability, you have to pull the trigger at a particular point. And if prices are going up or down, you could end up like buying at a low point or you could end up buying at a high point. So there's this risk, which doesn't happen with index funds because typically you'll save 10% of your salary and put it into the market like every year. So if, you're, if prices happen to be low, you're buying more. If prices happen to be high, you're buying less. So you're not subject to the risk of jumping into the market at exactly the wrong time. So I feel like because people are familiar with homes, we tend to assume that, okay, what we need to do to be financially secure in retirement is to own your home. But I would encourage your viewers to look at, yeah, look at something like the Canadian couch potato. Yeah. So you just buy index funds, try to keep the costs as low as possible. You're amazing. Really. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and yeah, you're totally right that the time has come to an end. Time's flown. I can't believe an hour has gone by that fast. Mr. Russell Wong, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It of really course. was such a pleasure. Learned so much. Maybe I don't know about anyone else listening, but to me, this is the only the beginning foray for me into the big bad world of how do we actually help help other people. So with that, again, appreciate you so much for coming on and spending the time. This is the Moon Tea Podcast, a podcast where we talk about craft, community, and building meaningful careers. If you ever want to reach out or have anybody else that you think would be interested in coming on, and if you're listening and you want to come on, please reach out to us at moonteapodcast at gmail.com. With that, take it easy and keep doing awesome things. See ya. Peace.